Thank you for inviting me to join you this morning. I've never preached at a pulpit quite this large. This is, I kind of don't know exactly how to stand. I'm going to do my best though. Um, Our scripture is uh, Psalm 73. Feel free to turn there. I'll give a little bit of a background and update on Psalm 73 and where it lies within the whole scheme of the Psalms before I actually read the whole thing to you or with you. But a quick bird's eye view of the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms. Probably know some of this information already, but it's helpful to kind of get our bearings. Um, And those 150 Psalms are split into five sections called books. And if you were to read through the Psalms, you would see this sort of definitive theme in, uh, in each of the five books. They're arranged in a way that give the reader an overarching, redemptive look at the people of God and the story of the people of God. One of the main themes that you'll see throughout the Psalms and the various writers, there's an intense preoccupation with being in the presence of God. That's what the Psalms are about, being in the presence of God. And you'll see in Psalm 73, this is a transition psalm between a couple of the books, and it leads us right into the presence of God. It's the first psalm in book three, and book three goes from 73 to 89. That's your, um, the, the overarching uh, psalms for book three. And so this is a transition psalm that's written by a guy named Asaph, not David. David is the writer of most of the psalms, but Asaph wrote this one. If you look at the end of book two, Psalm 72, you'll see how it flows right into 73. You'll see that book two ends on this high note, envisioning all that God would do for his people and through them. The kingdom vision that we see in Psalm 72 describes a God who will crush the oppressor. You'll see in verse 4. His name will endure forever in verse 17. All the nations will be blessed in him. Verse 18 says that, that he is the God of Israel alone who does wondrous things. He'll defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the children of the needy. And there's an abundance of grain in the land as they experience prosperity in verse 16. One commentator puts it like this. As you move out of book 2... Into Psalm 73, where the psalmist begins with this pronouncement that truly God is good to Israel that we read at the very beginning of the service today. This is what the commentator says. He says, it's almost as if the people of God, as they're reading this, they're holding their collective breath to see if Psalm 72 can actually become a reality. That's what they're reading. So here's the problem. The answer to their question is no. Or at least not yet. In their lifetime, even though there's this beautiful vision of the kingdom of God, we know that what we experience in this life doesn't always reflect that. And so we find in book three of the Psalms that it's not this nicely wrapped up answer with a pretty bow on top of it. But we do see an invitation to go deeper with God. And that's where Asaph focuses this psalm. So here's what I want you to notice as we read through Psalm 73. Asaph doubts God. That's one of the main things that you see Asaph admit. He's honest about his doubts. He's jealous of the prosperity of the wicked that he sees all around him. He's frustrated with God for allowing the wicked to prosper and he wants it for himself. 
He struggles through his doubts. And then he wonders if God really is good. Because when he looks all around, he admits that he can't see God's goodness. But then there's something that shifts his perspective. And this is what I want us to really focus on. It transforms his heart. Right in the middle of Psalm 73, you'll see it in verse 17. You can look there right now and get a sneak peek if you'd like. Verse 17, it's when he enters into the sanctuary of God, meaning the temple. It's the temple of God. This is where all of God's presence with his people rests. It's a symbol to the people of God coming down to be with his people, the temple. And when Asaph enters into the temple, into the sanctuary of God, that's when his life changes. And that's what, his, what, he, uh, what he confesses to the people in this psalm. So I'm going to read the psalm for us here. Psalm 73. I'm going to read it for us and then we'll pray and then we'll dig in. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell through, through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts throughout through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in their riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand all of this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them on slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory." Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." Let's pray. Father, Father, we come to you this morning and ask that you would open up the word to our hearts, that you would work by and through the word of God. And Holy Spirit, would you be here present this morning? We invite you to illuminate this word to us, to change us, to change us and mold us according to your word. 
not the culture, not traditions, not our own whims or our own desires, but we want to be transformed into your likeness by what we read in the scriptures, the holy word. So Father, this morning as we study it together, we pray that you would be here with us, guide us, and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to thank you for allowing me to come. I, I grew up uh, just north of here in Cisna Park, Illinois. Anybody, anybody know Cisna Park? Small town. We used to come here to Champaign uh, to go to the movies, go to the mall. Couldn't have had a mall. Didn't grow up with one of those. 800 people in my hometown. Um, I grew up watching University of Illinois basketball. Go flying Illini back in the 80s. It dates me a little bit. Um, but... Uh, I always, uh, I always was infatuated with Champaign, Illinois. It was like the place to be, the place to go. We would come down here in high school and, and go to all kinds of restaurants and different things. And I went to Parkland College for a year, thought my dream was to play basketball at University of Illinois. Didn't even come close to obtaining that. Um, but I do, I do, it is good to be back here near, near my hometown and um, just uh, preaching in a town that I grew up uh, coming to all the time and seeing. So I do thank you. I have uh, married with four kids. Youngest is six, all the way up to 12 years old. Um, and they, aren't, they aren't here this morning. My kids did not want to miss our Walk Through the Bible program that we have in our, in our uh, children's church. So they are, they are there at home uh, attending our church this morning. But it was really fascinating to me as we go through the order of service here um, this morning, I was at our church for our first service, just to start the service before I drove over, and we read uh, the Nicene Creed together, and it was just great to hear. We read the Apostles' Creed here this morning, just reminding us that we are connected to the saints of old. We're connected to, the, to God's church throughout generations, and I think about um, how, as I grow up uh, attending this, you know, uh, uh, just a non-denominational church, um, reminded that I'm connected to people that have made an impact on my life. Just yesterday, I drove home to visit an, an old saint from my own home church that was like a grandfather to me, grew up just next door to me. I was a faithful member of our church as I was growing up, and he's on hospice and, and heading into glory. And I went and sat with him yesterday, and we read the Psalms together. We read, I was reminded, as all the Psalms that we read through the order of service in the bulletin, it's just such a reminder that God works. He works through generations and he wants to draw us nearer to himself. He wants to be near us and he draws us in and he uses the Psalms to do it. It's such a fascinating thing to read through the overarching story of the Psalms. I encourage you to do it in your private devotional time. But we're going to study this one particular one today and see how this drawing near to the presence of God actually can impact us in a great way. So in verse 1 of the psalm we just read, we saw that Asaph, he knows, he's convinced that God is good. But he can't seem to come to terms with how God allows the wicked to prosper in his midst. That's really the problem that he's dealing with. He admits that he's deeply jealous of how, how they're allowed to prosper and seemingly never face the justice that they deserve. And that causes him to have doubts about the goodness of God. He's ready to give it all up and he's actually ready to pursue those worldly treasures for himself because he sees that there's a prosperity to the wicked. He's in turmoil. In verse 16, he even says that when he tries to ponder this and make sense of it, it's a wearisome task trying to understand what God is doing. 
until verse 17. Until, until verse 17, what happens there? What changes his perspective is that he enters into the sanctuary of God. He enters into the temple. This is when things all begin to change for Asaph. It's in the presence of God where transformation happens. And so this is the main idea I want you to remember for today. That the presence of our doubts, the presence of doubt, ought to lead us deeper into the presence of God. That might seem counterintuitive. The presence of doubt ought to lead us deeper into the presence of God. See, we live in a time where, where doubts are largely dismissed. Questions that we might have often reveal this lack of knowledge. And if you admit that you don't know something about something, you're immediately seen as less than, you're dismissed, and your opinion doesn't count. Because information is all at our fingertips. And so everyone has something to share on social media about how they're the ones who have found all the correct information. Answers are seen as a commodity, and we strive to be rich with them and to show off our knowledge. We don't want to be seen as uninformed in any way because that would make us seem less valuable to the information-rich world. So one of the things that we have inadvertently taught our young people in the church is that to question something about God or to raise doubts and questions about the Bible or what you see in the world and how you see God working in the world, to raise questions or doubts about those things somehow show that we have a lack of faith or that we don't trust God enough. And if your sal salvation depended on your acquisition of knowledge and answers, that's what we are seemingly teaching our young people. But when you think about your walk with God, it only seems logical that you would have doubts. In fact, I would say that you ought to have questions of all kinds because God is the creator of the universe. He's infinite. He's omniscient. He cannot be fully understood with our finite minds. Yet, God chooses to make himself knowable so that we can enjoy the journey of getting to know this seemingly unknowable God. And so you shouldn't run from your doubts or questions or be ashamed of them. Quite the contrary, actually. You should embrace them and use them as a way to ask great questions to go deeper with God. Because the presence of doubt in your life ought to drive you deeper into the presence of God. A few months ago, I was leading a, a junior high boys small group at one of my friend's houses. Uh, we sat out around their fire pit. It was me, it was uh, my friend Mike, another dad, and, and one of our elders. All three of us are dads who have uh, boys in this junior high group. Um, we're, we're looking at the book of Mark. And my oldest son is in the group. I'm always amazed at the great questions that, that he and his friends can come up with in youth group. It's quite, it's quite amazing. We try to teach them to ask all the questions that they can think of while we're in youth group, and we do our best to talk through them. And usually what we do is we just read through a, 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 a chapter of the Bible. We just read through an entire book week by week, and we just read through one chapter at a time or so. And we, uh, we read it out loud, and we just talk about it. It's pretty simple. My thought process each week as we head into it is something like this. I always think, like, I'm a pastor, and these are just 12-year-olds. I have a master's degree in theology. I'm starting my doctorate degree. I'm, uh, I've been doing youth ministry for 13 years. I can probably just show up, open up the Bible, read it with these kids, and perfectly explain everything that they read no problem, I can hash it all out for them. That's my thought process. 
We opened up this one time in particular. We're sitting around a fire pit. We open up to Mark chapter 14. If you know the, the, the outline of Mark chapter 14, uh, you'll know why this is funny. Because the sections, the headings, you know how they give you the section summary headings of each one? These are, the, these are the, the headings that are in the two sections that we were reading that night. Signs of the close of the age and the abomination of desolation. My eyes got kind of wide. I kind of looked over at the other two dads. I glanced at each other. These are the, you know, the adults. We're starting to get nervous. I'm trying to explain what the abomination of desolation is. And when I finished reading the text, I looked up, and every single one of those boys, <laughs> their hands shot up. They had all kinds of questions about the end times. They wanted to talk about everything they've ever read in Revelation. I just looked at our elder and the other dad that was with me. We just start laughing. I have no idea how to answer these questions because the more I learn about God, even as a pastor, the more questions I have. <laughs> I immediately felt useless because the truth is I share all the same questions that these junior high boys have and I don't have any answers. We have some of them. God reveals them to us, but I don't have all of them. But I didn't want to look dumb in front of my, my son and his friends. I think the way we ended the night, I just told them to all have a few extra s'mores that was it. They kind of lost interest after that. But think about this for a second. There's so much about what we read in the Bible and we observe in the world that just lead us to more questions. And if we're honest, it causes us to doubt God at times. And if we don't admit our shortcomings, if we don't commit to being honest about our doubts and the things we don't understand, and we, if we don't go to God with our questions, we'll, we will have some real struggles in life. And that's what Asaph is showing us here. Asaph has real legitimate struggles that, he, that, that we can probably relate to. Look at verse 4 with me. See what kinds of things, when he observes all the wickedness around him, when he observes all this wickedness, this is what he observes. He observes they don't have any troubles all the way up until their time of death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, it says, meaning that they have plenty to eat and drink. They're never in want of anything. They don't have any of the troubles of the regular people. They live life full of pride. Now think about this. It's one thing to make an observation like that of the wicked and arrogant people that you see walking around, but it's quite another to admit to God that you actually envy them, that you want what they have. Asaph took a look around at the world, and he noticed that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And in the midst of this, Asaph, he actually took this opportunity to commit to honesty and he confessed his struggle. He wants what they have. He's jealous of the world. He wants their comfort. He wants their wealth. He wants their pride. And because he doesn't have it, he doubts God's goodness. Now that's a deeper heart issue. Because think about it. There's, there's a righteous anger that arises in us when we see wickedness celebrated in the world, right? In one sense, it's actually good that we want to see justice in this world. Justice for the wicked. Justice for those who practice evil. We want to see horrific evil practices brought down and brought to justice. We want to see goodness prevail. We want to see righteousness be lifted up. We want to see God's kingdom win the day. We want to see the poor fed. The sick be healed. We want to see the oppressed set free. But if we're committed to honesty about what's going on in our own hearts the way Asaph is, then we might find that what we're actually angry about 
is not, is not entirely the injustice that we see, but it's also that we don't get to share in the prosperity of the world. In other words, we don't just want the wicked to be brought down. We want ourselves to be lifted up. One commentator says it like this. Our real problem that Asaph is getting at here, our real problem is envy. And envy essentially is criticizing God, and that's sin. We doubt God's goodness because we don't experience all the time the worldly prosperity. And we think that we're more deserving than others of those material blessings. And when we observe in this world that God is not dishing out the karma that everyone else deserves, we're left with unanswered questions about whether or not God is actually good. So when Asaph is honest about these profound doubts, where does it lead him? This is the most important thing that we can talk about in this whole, in this whole psalm. Verse 17, where does Asaph end up as he writes out these profound doubts and struggles? He ends up heading straight into the presence of God. That's where his clarity comes from. Look at verse 17 and read it with me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Isn't that fascinating? So I noticed three things in the rest of the chapter, in the rest of the Psalms. Three things that happened to Asaph in this psalm as he enters into the presence of God. We're going to talk about the first two pretty briefly and then we're going to settle in on the third one and finish up there. So what does Asaph find when he enters into God's presence? Three things. A transformed perspective, a renewed confession, and nearness with God. In our church, our pastor kind of jokes sometimes about, you know, when the Holy Spirit's really moving, we don't raise our hands as much in the Presbyterian churches, but our pens write faster. <laughs> so if you're taking notes, those are the three points. What Asaph finds in the presence of God is a transformed perspective, a renewed confession, and nearness with God. So first, let's talk about the first two. Um, the first one, transformed perspective. It's pretty straightforward, but it's really important. When you are in the presence of God, all the things that worry you or consume you in this life seem to fade in importance. The more time you spend in the presence of God, the, re the more the world fades around you. It doesn't mean that all the struggles and the, the problems aren't there. It doesn't mean they disappear. It doesn't mean that you should ignore your feelings and all the struggles that are going on in your own heart. Quite opposite, actually. Our lead pastor at our church wrote a book on embracing your identity in Christ. It's a great little short read. He speaks constantly about how when we're faced with our shortcomings, rather than work hard to overcome them on our own power, we need to embrace the sorrow of our humanity, embrace the sorrow of these life circumstances, and turn back to God and cry out to him for mercy. That's the first step in embracing your identity, recognizing that you don't have the power to overcome all these things. And so we cry out to God for mercy because he's the one who can. When you're in the presence of God, new things become important to you. Your perspective shifts. Look at verse 4 and 5. This is what happens with Asaph. He's complaining at the beginning of the psalm in verses 4 or 5 that the wicked are fat and sleek. They have no struggles in life. They don't have the problems like the rest of mankind. Now compare those two verses with verses 18 and 19. Look there with me. I'll read it. Notice the change in his perspective. This is what he said. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away, 
utterly by terrors. So what's changed here? It's, it's not the situation of the wicked and the arrogant people that has changed. They're still living in their wealth and abundance. The thing that has changed is Asaph's perspective. That shift in perspective comes in the presence of God in verse 17. When he went into the sanctuary of God, when he could see how the life of the wicked ended up because he was near to the heart of God, that's when he discerned their end. There's something about being in the presence of God that causes us to see things the way they truly are. Our perspective is transformed. And so the first step in understanding the heart of God and getting nearer to him is to spend time with him. To be in his presence and your, trans, your, your perspective will be transformed. The second point. When we're in God's presence, we experience a renewed confession. Look at verse 21 with me. This is Asaph's confession. After entering into the temple, into the sanctuary, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. See, when Asaph entered into God's presence, he felt the freedom for the first time to put all his doubts down in writing, make known to everyone who ever will read the Holy Scriptures. Think about that for a second. He, he's the author of one of the Psalms, and yet he's willing to make this confession. That's some confidence right there, isn't it? In the power of God. This is a godly man whom God has chosen to contribute to the Holy Scriptures, and even he's willing to admit these doubts and put them down in the Word of God forever. The reason he can do this is because in, he, he is in God's presence and that has led him to repentance. He's confessing to God that while he's giving into his frustrations at the beginning of the Psalms, he was embittered. Notice where his eyes are focused all throughout this Psalm. First, at the very beginning, his eyes are focused on the world and all the judgment toward others. He spent the first 12 verses explaining this judgment, this frustration. And then second, all of that frustration drove him back onto himself to focus his eyes back onto himself in verses 12 through 15, comparing himself with the world around him, and then he grew, he grew embittered with his low position. And finally, in verses 16 and 17, that's when his, he changes and he fixes his eyes on God's presence. And that's where his life changed. When he moved his focus away from the world, Away from himself and back onto God, he was able to admit in verse 22 that he had been brutish and ignorant like a beast towards God. He has a, a transformed perspective and a renewed confession. My daughter, she's 10, she loves to do artwork. And uh, she loves to make these beautiful illustrated, you know, quotes or Bible verses and all kinds of things. She hangs them on her wall, it's hilarious. One of them that she did was a, a warning to the boys to stay out of her room. Decorated with pretty flowers, you know, so it's like both inviting but really, you know, stopping the enemy from entering her territory. But one of, one of the, her favorite quotes, and she, she made this beautiful illustration out of it, was by Corey Tenboom. Some of you probably know who she is, some of you do. Um, Corey, Denboom, Corey Tenboom was a Dutch Christian who helped many, many Jews escape from the Nazi regime. Her family would hide Jews and, and save them. She has many books about, um, about the power of God during that time. Uh, she and some of her family members, they were caught. They were imprisoned. Um, she wrote about her experiences and the way the Holy Spirit would work in such mighty ways in the midst of these different internment camps and things that she had to live through. She's someone who has been through some of the worst 
circumstances imaginable. I encourage you to read uh, The Hiding Place or a couple of Tramp for the Lord, a couple other books that she's written. Just fascinating. She's been through some of the worst circumstances imaginable, and she came out of it with this transformed perspective. This is one of her most famous quotes. This is the one my daughter wrote and uh, made a poster out of. She says this, If you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look inward, you will be depressed. But if you look at God, you will be at rest. It's such a great, succinct way of putting this transformed perspective in the presence of God. I wonder, I wonder if, if some of us today might struggle with the kind of anger that Asaph admits to. Maybe you've even convinced yourself that all of your anger is actually righteous anger. Maybe you're right. Maybe the injustice that you see in the world really does invite us to a righteous anger. But for Asaph, there was a point where his righteous anger turned into selfish ambition. And I think we all need to examine our hearts at times like Asaph did. Asaph was convinced that his evaluation of the wicked world all around him was actually good. He says so in verse 13, that he kept his heart clean and he washed his own hands in innocence. But even as he was living the right way, he still managed to fix his eyes on the world and then back on himself And he never focused back onto God until he entered into the sanctuary of God. He admits that his struggles and doubts, that he was jealous and arrogant. So maybe we need to ask ourselves, what's going on in our own hearts? Are you really dwelling and finding your rest in the presence of God? Are your eyes fixed on the presence of God? Are you spending too much time dwelling on the injustices of the world that you can't control? Do you need to take a step back and confess like Asaph did that you've been brutish and ignorant? Maybe you and I are like Asaph. He grew in his frustrations with what he saw. He came to a point where he was resigned to the fact that all the righteous living up to that point was in vain. Maybe you're tired and you're ready to give it all up. You feel like life isn't worth it. Look at verse 12 again. He says, Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean. He's basically saying, I did all the right things. I lived how I was supposed to live. And it was all for nothing. For, as, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning, he says. If you're convicted by this, perhaps we could together learn from this psalm and we could get back into the presence of God. And that leads us to the third point. In the presence of God, you will find nearness with God. And that might sound strange because it sounds like I'm saying the same thing twice, right? Of course, when you're near God, you're in the presence of God. But here's what I mean by this. In the, in the wintertime, um, my family, is a kind of a tradition we have. We like to sit around our living room at the end of the night. And we read books together sometimes. Um, my youngest is six years old right now. She loves to just curl up on my lap while I read. This last winter we read Narnia. I would read out loud or sometimes my wife would read another book to them. But we would turn on the fireplace and just enjoy some time together. And we did this. When we do this, the kids just love to sit as close as possible. If you have children, you know what I'm talking about when you read to them. Every time it feels like if they have the opportunity, especially when they're at their youngest... They would just try to squeeze and squirm their way to get as close as humanly possible to their mom or dad. 
Like they try to have every square inch of themselves fit on my lap while I'm trying to read. You know what I'm talking about. Or maybe like a newborn baby. My wife, I remember her describing the feeling of holding the newborn baby in their arms. I see Amanda holding hers right now. (laughs) But you know that feeling that my wife would say that she felt like the baby just wanted to crawl into her skin if if she could have or if he could have. This is the picture I get from Asaph here. See, in the beginning of Psalm 73, Asaph speaks about the goodness of God toward all the Israelites, to the Israelite people. It's a general proclamation that God is good to the upright. Look at verse 1. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Right? But by the end of Psalm 73, he expresses this, this sweetness of personally being in God's presence. Look at verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. In other words, it's one thing for my kids to be able to objectively say, oh, dad is close by. He's in the same room. (laughs) Sitting on the couch right over there. It's quite another for them, though, to snuggle up on the couch and be held by me and personally relish the presence of their father. A newborn baby isn't satisfied with her mother just being in the same room. They insist on being as near as possible. They must be held. It's a nearness that feels as though they could always be just a bit closer, and so you try to go deeper in. It's a nearness that Asaph is experiencing here as he walks out Psalm 73. It's what transforms him. Once he enters into the presence of God, he wants to go deeper into the presence of God. Once he gets a taste of it, he wants even more of it. Look at verse 23. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's absolutely delighted with his God. And that, what is it that brings him his delight? It's nearness with God. Knowing God is near is different than actually being near to God. Think about the implications of this as we walk out our faith. Going to church is different than worshiping God, right? Giving your tithe to the church out of duty is different than being generous because you've experienced the generosity of God. Reading your Bible every day is different than being transformed by the scriptures. Being married is different than being in love with your spouse. Children growing up in your home is different than discipling your children. Let's bring it back to our original point for just a second as we finish up. This is how we'll we'll end. I want you to notice something extremely important here in this psalm. Notice what Asaph does not say. He does not say in verse 28, but for me it is good to find all the answers to all my questions. Or he doesn't say, but for me it is good to for all of my doubts to have a perfect resolution. He simply says in verse 27 that those who are far from God will perish, and so for me it is good to be where? Near God. See, as far as Asaph can tell, God has made a promise that he doesn't seem to keep. That's important. God has promised to be a conqueror, a deliverer to Israel, a defender of the cause of the poor, to crush the oppressor. This is what we read in 72 the psalm right before. But Asaph doesn't actually witness these things with his own eyes. There's a hiddenness to God's nature that we can't fully grasp. 
And we have to come to terms with that like Asaph does. There's a, there's a theologian that goes to our church. Willem van Gemmeren is his name. He wrote a commentary on this psalm. He goes to our church. And, and when I sat with him and talked with him about this psalm as preparing to, to preach it, this is what he told me. I think, it was, I think it was so good. I asked him if I could write it down and share it with you. This is what he said. He said, towards the end of life, he's in his 80s now, toward the end of life, a person who has walked with God actually ends up with more questions for God than when he started. This is because they're focusing in more and more on the essence of who God is rather than getting all, their, all the perfect answers to their questions. And I'll tell you that during a time like we're living in right now, this is all the more important. If you don't have a hundred questions for God about what his purpose is with this pandemic over the last couple of years, all the effects that it's had on our world, if you're not questioning all of those things, you probably are living on a different planet. As much as we might want it to be, the answers are not in our politics, our medical advances, or anywhere else. You ought to have doubts and questions about all these things. It's only natural. And the presence of those doubts ought to lead us back into the presence of God. I'm going to finish. I'll finish with this. Unless you thought that the sermon wasn't going to be about Christ. <laughs> the Psalms are absolutely beautiful for how they bring out in a poetic way our ability to look at the own situation of our hearts and deal with our hearts. There's this sense in which the Psalms long for a day when we can fully be brought into the presence of God. Where all, where all of our questions will actually be answered one day. But the readers of this psalm knew firsthand the problems that we all face. They give us this description of kingdom life. It almost seems too good to be true because in their experience, it never came to fruition. It remained always a dream to the readers of the psalms. When Asaph mentions in verse 17 that everything has changed when he entered into the sanctuary of God, he's talking about an actual physical place. He's talking about the temple. The temple is the central place to the Old Testament people of God. The, the temple is where God comes down from heaven to be in the midst of his people. It symbolizes the meeting point between a perfect and holy God and a sinful people that he loves and desires to be with. And in order to accomplish this coming together of sinful people before the Lord, God had set up a system to purify the people so that he could be with them. Right? This is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that I'm sure you guys have studied before. The priests would have to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people in order to make them clean to be in God's presence so that God could come down and be in their midst. And so these sacrifices took place right there at the temple. He used the temple as a place to do it when he wanted to be with his people. He used priests as the mediator for the people, to, between himself and the people. And he used sacrifices as a method for purifying the people. Now think about this to the original reader of Psalm 73. Asaph is experiencing here in the midst of his doubt, what he's expressing in the midst of his doubt is hope. Because in the temple, he finds refuge, the presence of God. But what's the problem? If you read to the very next psalm, Psalm 74, it's all about the temple being destroyed. The temple was brought down, hatchets to the cedars in the temple. It's utterly destroyed. And so what does this mean for the people of God? It means 
Does it, that all hope is lost for them. They have no hope. All hope is lost because their entire system was temporary and it was falling apart before their very eyes. Without the temple, they have no place to make sacrifices and the priests can't lead them into the presence of God. And so they were spiritually dead, no hope. And this is why the Psalms actually point us to where the, the source of all of our hope lies. It's in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, we find a new reason to have hope. Hebrews chapter 4 says that Jesus is our great high priest. We have a great high priest who is able to completely understand every, every struggle we have, every doubt we might face. He can handle all of our doubts, and he carries us himself into the presence of God. But not only is he the priest, he is also the sacrifice. He is the penalty for our sin. He pays the price. He is the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And not only is he the priest that leads us to the presence of God, not only is he the lamb that is sacrificed to fulfill all that is needed to bring us into the presence of God, but Jesus himself is the temple. He is the place where God comes down to meet with his people. Jesus is the new and the better way that God is using to come and be with his chosen people, with us, his church. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. In John chapter 2, Jesus literally says, destroy this temple, and what? In three days, I will raise it up again. He was talking about his own body, the resurrection from the dead. And so when Asaph finds rest in the sanctuary of God, the answer that he finds in the temple was temporary. It was only good for a time, but eventually... It leaves the reader with more questions than answered. And guess what? That's the way it will be for the rest of our lives. As you walk with God, you will have more and more questions. You will wonder what God is doing. And every time you witness evil in the world, every time you experience the brokenness, maybe you've lost a job, a friend has betrayed you, the pandemic causes major disruption in our lives, or maybe you've dealt with the death of a loved one, an old saint going to be with the Lord, or maybe a child dies in your presence as we've had death in our congregation of children. When family members get sick, when you feel lonely and isolated, when you suffer through depression, when you sin and you can't seem to get rid of it on your own, you'll be left with questions and doubts. You are not alone. You are not alone. Even the author of the scriptures shared your struggles and expressed their doubts. And where does Asaph end up? The very end of Psalm 73, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then the last verse, 28, so powerful. But as for me, it is good to be near the Lord. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Asaph comfort comes from the presence of God, from being near to God, I would urge you today that it is, a, it is your calling to draw nearer to the presence of God. And the only way we can do that is through the temple Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you, 
who rose again from the dead to triumph over death itself, to prepare a way for you to be in the presence of our Heavenly Father. And as you wait for that day to be with him in glory, fully renewed and fully restored with all your doubts and questions answered, I encourage you to draw closer to him every day and be in the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son Jesus and drawing us closer to you. I pray that we would read the Psalms with a renewed confession, a transformed perspective, and a desire to be near our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Draw us to yourself. Help us to leave this place and know that we are yours, that you have called us, that you have chosen us. And Father, transform us by the power of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.